We deserve better than this. They are all so self-absorbed, they just need to get over themselves. There are people out there who are really hurting. I wish they'd just get on with the job of helping us. Now, there's some of the comments in the media this week after yet another week of leadership conflict within our federal government. And if the media blogs and talkback radio were anything to go on, people are getting really sick of this. And it's not just Labor. I'm not picking on them. It's Liberal as well. News polls are showing record levels of disappointment with our political leaders as people just long for a leader that they can trust. People are just hanging out for someone that they can have confidence in, someone that they'll feel safe about. I mean, wouldn't that be nice? Wouldn't it be nice? Imagine having a leader who, without hesitation, you could always be confident that they had our best interests at heart. That'd be nice. Well, today's passage from Isaiah points us to the truth that as Christians we actually do. It's Jesus Christ. And he never ever stops doing what's right and what is best for his people. Now, of course, Jesus is not mentioned in our passage today. That's because Isaiah was written hundreds of years before Jesus was even born. But we've hit a section of Isaiah which very specifically prepares us for the coming of Jesus. And it does that by telling us about a pretty disappointing king, firstly, but then finishing with the promise of a vastly superior king to come. That is pretty much the flow of this morning's section. And it is a bit long. It goes from, as I said, chapter 7 into chapter 9. And as we'll see, there's a bit of tricky spots to follow it through. But overall, the way it fits together is that it starts with a woeful king, finishes with a wonderful king. Now, what does Isaiah want to tell us about a wonderful king at this point in the book? Well, it's actually all flowing out of what we discovered last week and that intriguing finish to chapter 6. Remember last week, that's where Isaiah saw the vision of God and uh, got a glimpse of his holiness and how God was going to punish uh, Israel for disregarding his holiness. Like you level a forest, he's going to level Israel, but then right at the very end there was an intriguing hint of a holy seed. The suggestion of new growth, a new people to come beyond the judgment. And that raises a whole lot of questions. Who's going to be in that holy people? Who's going to be in that new... What's the future hold for that holy seed? And in particular this morning, who is going to be the leader of that holy seed, that new people? Well, that's where this... Today's section fits into the scheme of things and it starts by telling us about a woeful king, verse 1. When Ahaz, king of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, was king of Judah, King Rezin of Aram and Pekah of Ramalia, king of Israel, marched up to fight against Jerusalem, but they couldn't overpower it. Now the house of David was told... Aram has allied itself with Ephraim, so the hearts of Ahaz and his people were shaken, as the trees of the forest were shaken by the wind. Now, lots of names to try and follow there, I know. Basically, it's saying that the northern tribes of Israel, who at this stage of history had broken away from the southern tribe of Judah, there'd been a civil war, and the northern tribes had broken away, well, the northern tribes are actually teaming up with another country, Aram, so as to come down and beat up poor old southern Judah, which is where Isaiah lives. 
And so because of that, Judah and her king, um, Ahaz, they are quite literally shaking in their boots. They're looking down the barrel of completely being overrun here by, by the northern tribes and, and Aram. God, however, sends Isaiah to tell King Ahaz not to worry. In verse 7, we heard that God says that despite all the big talk from those kings up there in uh, Israel and Aram, despite all their boasting about what they're going to do to Judah, it's not going to happen. Okay, God's going to shatter both of them. Judah's going to be safe. In fact, God goes on to say to King Ahaz that so as to prove that he and Judah will be okay, that King Ahaz can ask God for a sign and God will give them one. So as to prove that he will protect them. Verse 10, again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or in the highest heights. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. Now, friends, here's the important thing to grasp, which is perhaps not all that obvious uh, from this passage. Ahaz sounds like he's a goodie at this point. You know, I don't want to put God to the test. Sounds good. Quoting from the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy, not meant to do that sort of thing. However, when you look up this account of exactly the same incident in 2 Kings chapter 16, what is obvious there is that Ahaz does not want a sign from God because he's already decided to make a treaty with Assyria for protection. And so a sign from God at this point will only make him look bad for his alliance with Assyria, which, by the way, is a big no-no anyway. When Israel first went into the Promised Land, God expressly told them, don't make treaties with foreign nations. I'm all the protection you need. And so all in all, King Ahaz, he is a major disappointment. Here He's the king of God's people. He's shaking like a leaf. He has no confidence at all in what God says. He's disobediently made a treaty with another nation and now he's hiding behind false piety to make himself look better than he is. He is a woeful king. God, however, sees straight through him. God has a habit of doing that. So even though Ahaz may not want a sign, God's going to give him one anyway. And it's not going to be the sort of sign he's going to enjoy because it'll be a sign to show this woeful king that he has been rejected. What will the sign be? It will be the sign of a child. Verse 13. Now Isaiah said, Hear now, you house of David. Is it not enough to try the patience of men? Will you try the patience of my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. He will eat curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the, right and choose, sorry, reject the wrong and choose the right. That sounds a bit weird, I know. We'll come back to that in a tick. It's the next verse that's the one verse that's the one worth noticing at the moment. Verse 16. Before the boy knows enough to reject the right and choose sorry, reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. Now, okay. Thinking caps now. It's really important to be clear what is going on in this in this section. Because Sometimes people read verse 14 about the virgin being with child, which is quoted by Matthew in the birth, about the birth of Jesus, and people get so excited then about Jesus and Christmas that they almost forget what's going on here. I mean, for starters, verse 14 literally reads, the young woman is with child. 
the verse may not necessarily be saying anything about the state of her virginity at all. It's just that the translators get so excited about it being quoted by Matthew and Jesus, which was a virgin birth, they, they keep reading the word virgin back into the original when the original may, is much more ambiguous. In its original setting, Isaiah probably did not have in mind the sort of virgin birth that happened with Jesus. Thinking caps on. Let's be clear what's going on in the original setting. King Ahaz doesn't want a sign because he's already decided disobediently that he's going to trust Assyria rather than God. So God decides that he's going to give Ahaz a sign anyway, and that the sign is that a child will be born, and verse 16, before the child is even old enough to know the difference between right and wrong, the two countries that Ahaz is so scared of, God will have laid them waste. In other words, before this Emmanuel child even has the chance to grow up, Israel and Aram will have been crushed. All of which is sounding good. Here's the twist. Because as for Assyria, which you might remember King Ahaz had run to for protection instead of God, in verse 17 now, God says that he's going to use Assyria to punish King Ahaz rather than protect him. Verse 17, The Lord will bring on you and your people and on the house of your father a time unlike any since Ephraim break away from Judah. He will bring the king of Assyria. And what happens in the rest of this chapter is that God then goes on to describe how he's going to use Assyria to humiliate and humble Judah. In fact, down in verse 21, God speaks about the land being so devastated by Assyria that crops won't be able to grow and so all people will have to survive on will be milk from a few cows and goats and some wild honey. Which is why... Back up in verse 15, the Emmanuel child himself will eat curds and honey. It's because there'll be nothing else to eat. The land will be so ravaged by Assyria. So in its original context, the birth of this child, Emmanuel, it's all about the rejection and the punishment of woeful King Ahaz. In fact... Even the name Emmanuel, which means God with us. For King Ahaz, there's actually a sense of rebuke embedded in that name. Because in verse 13, it's very pointedly Isaiah who declares the name. It is Isaiah saying to King Ahaz, the child will be called Emmanuel because God is with us. In other words, he's not with you. God is with us. God is with those who, unlike you, do trust in God. How the thingy caps going? King King Ahaz is a dud. As a sign of God's rejection of him, Emmanuel is going to be born to show that God is with those who trust him and not people like King Ahaz. And the Emmanuel child will show that because before the child even has a chance to grow up, Ahaz is going to be punished by God using Assyria, the very country that he'd run to for protection. Tighten the thinking caps one more notch. Because with all that in mind, that million-dollar question now becomes, who is this child that the virgin will give birth to? Or should I say, who is this child that the young woman will give birth to? Because it is clearly not Jesus who Isaiah originally had in mind. 
Because remember, this is going to be a child who has to be born within Ahaz's lifetime because this child is a sign of things that are going to happen with Assyria. To cut a long story short, the child sign promised in chapter 7 turns out to be Isaiah's own son, who is born in the very next chapter. In chapter 8, verse 3, Isaiah has a son, and in verse 4, God explicitly tells Isaiah that before his son is even old enough to speak, Aram and Israel will be plundered, just like he promised in the previous chapter about the Emmanuel child. And as the chapter goes on, the name Emmanuel and its meaning about God being with those who trust him and not being with people like Ahaz, it keeps popping up regarding the events which Isaiah's son are a sign of. It's there in chapter 8, verse 8. It's there again in verse 10. And finally, towards the end of the chapter, Isaiah himself comes straight out and says that his family is the sign. Look with me at verse 17 of chapter 8. I will wait for the Lord, who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. I will put my trust in him. Here I am, and the children the Lord has given me. We are signs and symbols in Israel from the Lord Almighty. See how it's all flowing? I know I've just raced through chapter 8. I'll I'll tell you why in a tick. But hopefully you're getting the drift of this. King Ahaz is a woeful king who has trusted Assyria rather than God and as a sign of his rejection, God has promised the birth of a child and by the time that child has grown up, God will have punished King Ahaz by using the very country that he's foolishly run to for protection. And in the very next chapter, Isaiah's own son is born as that sign. And the reason I've rushed all through chapter 8 is because I want to get to chapter 9. Because that is where the whole section is moving to. This is where the whole section is building towards. Because in chapter 9, there is a sudden, massive prediction about a stunning new king to come. That after the rejection of woeful King Ahaz and the likes of him, a wonderful new king is now promised. Come with me to chapter 9, verse 1. Chapter 9. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honour Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. And those living in the land of of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. And skip down to verse 6. For to us, a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Friends, that description is staggering. As people previously living in darkness, people rejoice in the dawning of a new age of light, the dawning of a new kingdom in which verse 1 tells us even Gentiles are going to be caught up in. A new kingdom ruled over by a king of astonishing qualities, a massive king whose power and peace will never end, a realm of justice and righteousness forever, a counsellor, a father, a peacemaker, 
a mighty God. It is a beautiful blend of strength and tenderness, of authority and care. Here is a leader to truly delight in. All the more after the disappointment of King Ahaz and the likes of him. Because the contrast could not be more stark. Ahaz was a scared, disobedient, vacillating ruler. He was a person who made bad mistakes and then tried to cover his tracks with false piety. Here is a strong leader. Here is an obedient leader. Here is a firm leader. Here is a dependable leader. Here is a wonderful king whose kingdom would be a delight to be in. Here is a king whose commandments would be a blessing to keep. Here is a king who you would count it a privilege to be the subject of this king. For you would get to enjoy everlasting peace and justice and righteousness. And Isaiah is ramping up the anticipation of this new leader who will eventually arrive to take the reins over the holy seed that we tantalisingly thought about last week. And friends, it is with those thoughts and with that level of anticipation that Jesus Christ strides into history. And the gospel writers almost fall over themselves in excitement of the news that this wonderful king has appeared. Come with me to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 4. There are so many places in the New Testament we could go to. Let's do Matthew, chapter 4. Listen to how Matthew describes what Jesus did immediately after his temptations in the wilderness. Matthew chapter 4, verse 12. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he returned to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulon and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet. Isaiah, land of Zebulon, land of Naphtali, the way to the sea along the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. And those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Now, I don't know, but I can't help but think that Matthew's hand was almost trembling as he wrote that as he quoted from Isaiah chapter 9 there about this extraordinary king that was promised all those years ago. A wonderful counsellor, a mighty God, an everlasting father, prince of peace, he's arrived. And he is even more splendid than expected because this time... That sign in Isaiah about a woman having a child called Emmanuel, that sign of God being with those who trust him, now with Jesus, that sign has been taken to a whole new level of meaning beyond what even Isaiah originally intended. This time, it quite miraculously really is a virgin who gives birth. And this time, it really is Emmanuel, God with us, not just in name, but really, physically, God with us, as God himself steps into the world and nothing is ever the same again. 
a truly great light has dawned. And that is the measure of Jesus, that he keeps doing these great things. I mean, in one sense, there are the big Old Testament predictions which Jesus fulfills, like the wonderful king in chapter 9. But there are also the other Old Testament events, like that child Emmanuel in chapter 7, in which within the Old Testament there's actually a real level of closure about them. I mean, you hear about the sign of the Emmanuel child and then the sign appears in the very next chapter when Isaiah's son is born and you're thinking, okay, that's it, that's closure. But then Jesus appears and suddenly it's it's not closure after all, it's even bigger, it's even grander, it's even more mind-boggling as he comes along and fulfills things that you you don't even think need fulfilling anymore. It is a measure of the greatness of Jesus that he does that. It is a measure of how great the light that has now dawned in the world with the coming of this leader. Whew. Now, friends, I know that some parts of this morning have been a bit of hard work to follow. Uh, if you don't think of anything else about this, this section, please understand that it is all about the coming of a wonderful king of staggering proportions. It starts with a disappointing king. And it takes a few twists and turns as it describes the rejection of that king. But it finishes in a blaze of glory about a dazzling king to come. A king whom Isaiah could only look forward to. But a king who for us is already here. It's Jesus Christ. And he is even more dazzling than expected. I don't know about you, but I think that's a very motivating thing. Here is a truth that should spur us on to do the things that Jesus wants us to do. To follow him as a leader. So are you struggling to do that at the moment? Are you struggling in your trust in Jesus? Maybe you're putting way too much emphasis into your work. Or your study. Or your hobby. Even though Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God. Maybe you're getting a bit too carried away with stuff. Gadgets and clothes and the house and the garden. Even though Jesus says, don't store up treasures on earth. Maybe you're holding some grudges against people. Even though Jesus says, love your enemies. Maybe you're very busy looking after yourself and not very good at helping others. Even though Jesus says the first will be last and the last will be first. Maybe you're not very, maybe you're unwilling to ever risk anything for Jesus, even though Jesus says whoever follows me must deny himself and take up his cross. Friends, are there honestly areas in your life where you are holding out on Jesus a little bit? Not really following through on what he says. Don't be like that. Jesus is not the sort of leader who says those things to make his life easier. He tells us these things so that we might have life and life to the full. Because this Jesus, he's not your average leader. He's wonderful counsellor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. And to be his subjects, that is a great delight. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the genius of your word.
for the way it so uh, wonderfully testifies to the grandeur of your son, our King, Jesus Christ. Father, thank you for the light that has dawned in our lives through his coming. And we pray that we would excel at being his subjects as he excels at being our leader. Amen.